Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation. Thank you for downloading, but more than downloading, thank you for engaging these really important uh, conversations we get to have with incredible guests. And I get to do it, um, Phil Dark, uh, if, you do, if you didn't know that already, but I get to do this, all this great fun stuff with Brandon Stiver, my co-host. How you doing, Brandon? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. You got your Biola shirt on and my mom went to Biola. Uh, I went to Vanguard though. So there's a little, a little SoCal Christian University rivalry going on. And, and I mentioned that because, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we will have some video, uh, for Think Orphan, uh, incorporated a little bit more. I know Phil and Rick were doing, uh, video back in the day. We haven't done it in the last couple months, but uh, or a couple years, but uh, but anyways, it, it gave me an occasion to mention that you're wearing the wrong school, but I won't hold it against you. Well, you know, my son plays soccer there. He's there. Oh, does he? Sophomore, so yeah. Oh, good for him. Yeah. So, and uh, I've grown to really, uh, really like Biola. A lot of, lot of, lot of good things about it. Dr. Corey is an amazing president. Um, he's doing some incredible things at the school, and then. My son Drew loves it. He's he's really enjoying it, and uh, yeah. So I've been very pleased with the with the study. You know, with the it uh, is a good school, and, and you know what? scholars I, they have there are pretty amazing. I'm not gonna lie, I sat in the New Testament class, and I was like, I'm jealous. I was jealous that Drew gets to learn from these uh, really bright guys, men and women. But there was a guy right, that and and I can have I, I I have my my very you know all these West Coast schools, because you teach at William Jessup too, don't you? Yep, I do. Yep, and I teach at Multnomah as well as Vanguard. And there's all these great West Coast evangelical schools. I, I don't really have any, I have a lot of friends that went to Biola, so I got love for them. Yeah, and, and not, Ed, Ed Stetzer. Like, there's no real rivalries in the Christian, maybe Azusa and Biola maybe. historically, but even that, it's like, really, come on. I mean, I don't know. They're not like UCLA, USC, or anything. I mean, just like you know, it's like whatever. I I, I didn't. I think Ed Stetzer just became the new uh, dean over Talbot too, he which did. is kind of cool. He's a yeah. good guy. I think starting July one, June one, or July one, something like that. But yeah, but yeah. So yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a good. It's a good place. I'm actually going to be there. I don't know when this is released, and Bobby there, uh, March twenty second through the twenty fourth for Bio Missions Conference, which is pretty cool. So. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited, excited. I'm, I'm growing more and more fond of, of the school. So anyway, that's not what we're talking about today though. Um, you know, if you, if you didn't notice already, I, I definitely have a bug right now. I'm, I'm on the tail end of it. If we would have tried to record yesterday at this time, I would not be here. Brandon would have been doing it by himself. So, um, I'm grateful for healing and I'm grateful to be on the other side of a, of a brutal bug, but my voice is not fully healed yet. So anyway, just, uh, you know, for those of you who are wondering what's going on with me, I'm just, I'm just sharing because we like to just share with what's going on in our lives. So anyway, Brandon, who do we have coming our way today? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you're here, uh, Phil, first of all, after doing the Elizabeth Kirk episode uh, interview by myself and then doing our special Lesotho episode. Uh, I'm glad you're back, and I'm glad you're back for this interview because we do have uh, Lindsay Hadley on the show today. Uh, Lindsay Hadley has been working in the global nonprofit space for for quite some time. People might uh, know her name from initiatives that she did around global citizen and orphan myth, uh, 
And we're going to be talking with her today about the documentary Uncharitable, uh, which she was the executive producer of. Uh, we just really kind of dig in a lot with, you know, how could nonprofits, uh, you know, it, level up and and better support um, better support their 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 beneficiaries. I'm not crazy about that term, but you know, like leverage impact uh, and this uh, this. This documentary uh, is is really fantastic. So uh, get your get your earbuds in there, Phil, uh, because uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll jump into this conversation with uh, with Lindsay here. Well, Lindsay Hadley, finally have you on. Finally, you know, we talked about this for a long time to possibly get you on to talk about some different things, but. Uh, you know, a lot of our audience probably doesn't know who you are. You're doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes usually. So bringing you out to, to have a great conversation here, to hopefully. So can you just uh, briefly introduce yourself and what brought you into the nonprofit and the uh, orphan and vulnerable child space in particular? Well, thank you so much for having me, uh, Phil and Brandon. It's such a joy to connect and talk with you today about vulnerable children. There's nothing I'm more passionate about in terms of causes, which is saying a lot because I've spent my career last 20 years doing nonprofit work, ending extreme poverty, uh, medical vaccinations and pandemics addressing way before we had our recent, you know, um, COVID-19 pandemic, addressing epidemics and infectious disease, addressing climate change, addressing um, all kinds of different social, mental health, all kinds of issues. What I realized early in my career, fairly early on, I realized that further upstream to all of that was these vulnerable kids. Like if you if you care about poverty and incarceration and you care about, you know, trauma and you care about violence, and you care about sexual exploitation and human trafficking, all these issues, like the, the, the one of the furthest upstream um, preventative things we can do is get kids in permanent loving families. And that blew my mind to realize that. And actually, um, I really um, I really came to the awareness about the plight of vulnerable children, particularly in institutional care around the world through Deborah Lee Furness, who many of you may know her husband, Hugh Jackman, incredible, beloved, greatest showman of all time. Um, and I was working, um, I was the executive producer and one of the founding members of an organization called Global Citizen. And I was uh, the chief development officer there and we were constantly trying to get celebrities to support us for a big music festival we put on in Central Park every year to leverage top-down commitments for funding for any extreme poverty during the United Nations General Assembly meeting around the Sustainable Development Goals. And Hugh and Deb early on were some of our biggest, earliest advocates. They were our first major celebrity ambassadors. They supported us. Um, they enabled so much of our work with their credibility and their affinity and their credible hearts and connections and resources. And they were so wonderful. And we were backstage at the festival and I was up on stage. Um, I had like had my headset on and trying to put out fires as you do as an executive producer of a big show. It was live broadcast to 30 million people and there's 60,000 people on the Great Lawn. And I was standing next to Deborah Lee Furness and Hugh Jackman and Deb said, Lizzie, and she pointed out to the crowd of 60,000 people and she said, can you do all this? for me, but for orphans. <laughs> and I was like, what? what do you, what do you mean? And she's like, well, did you know, we adopted our two children. Um, and this is my passion, um, that I've spent, uh, the last decade trying to advocate in Australia, where we're from to change the laws, to be more conducive for adoption out of the foster care system. They had a really anti-adoption structure and policy framework in Australia. 
And she, along with, you know, her movement uh, um, of her organization called Adopt Change, was able to change policy and legislation so that children could actually be adopted by their foster care parents. Um, the the precursor that made it so that there was an adoption potential was some of the reactionary dynamic from what happened to the stolen generation of the Aboriginal community in Australia. Right, there was a lot of people that were Christianizing and and um, and and Westernizing the young Aboriginal generation, which was really horrific. And so they came up with all these laws that kept families from being able to adopt. But then that had these negative impacts of the kids that were institutional care. And so long mm-hmm. story short, led on that had these amazing outcomes and wanted to take it to a global stage. And so early on, I was the acting CEO and kind of um, part of the original founding team that created um, what's called Hopeland, which is her organization that addresses these same issues. So I give the credit to her. She was kind of the first one to be like, get involved and then educated me about how 80% of kids in institutions have parents, that kids we thought were orphans were not orphans. And I was guilty of going to these third world countries in my right. early career, holding these little orphanages, funding orphanages, sponsoring orphans, building orphanages. I mean, I was totally unaware that some of my helping was hurting. And so she she gets the credit for that and and then went on a journey for, you know, since that time, I think it's been nine years, um, getting educated and learning a lot from incredible people like yourselves. And I'm such a fan of One Million Home and Mike Gallagher and your team. Oh my gosh, you guys are chef's kiss. I tell everybody yes. all the time. You're not supposed to have favorite children and from being in the nonprofit sector and partnering with hundreds of charities, but I do have my favorites and you guys are one of them for sure. Uh, that's that's very that's very nice of you. And uh you know, you 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 highlight a couple things in there that I that I really want to dig into. So so you mentioned global citizen. Uh when we talk about global poverty and those that are living in extreme poverty, that's not a small scale uh problem. That's that's pretty that's pretty wide scale. I'm uh, uh, on the side, I teach at Vanguard University and we, I teach a global development course. So it's all focused on poverty and how entangling it is and how difficult it is and how widespread it is, especially in the global South. Um, and, you know, throughout your career, Lindsay, you know, including doing initiatives like Global Citizen, you know, you've been able to try and scale some, you know, initiatives to match the really kind of wide scale issue of global poverty or children outside of parental care. Um, I would just be kind of interested, you know, a lot of the listeners of Think Orphan are really coming there, you know, small mom and pop nonprofits doing their best to, you know, serve orphans and vulnerable children or their supporters, practitioners, uh, not, not, I, I would assume I could be wrong, uh, but not a lot of people that are working with, you know, in front of a 30 million fans, you know, going after global poverty. You know, can you just share with us a little bit more about that and, you know, what you've learned from those types of initiatives and and even what role mass events uh, play, you know, in in rallying public support towards a towards a given global cause? Yeah, thanks, Brenda. That's a great question. And you're so right. Poverty is such a systemic large issue. And that's why things like the framework the UN has laid out of the Sustainable Development Goals, which are 17 different frameworks, which is everything from education to gender inequality to climate change to public-private partnerships, right? There's so many dynamics, food insecurity, that play into systemic poverty. And 1.4 billion people are living in abject poverty as defined on living less than $1.50 a day um, by the World Bank. And that's not $1.50 a day like if you took that down to Mexico, US, it's $1.50 a day relative to our economy. So to put that in perspective, imagine living on your education, your food, your medical care, your you know, your housing, everything being, um, covering in a $1.50 a day 
for a person. I mean, that's just unthinkable. And your basic needs are not going to get met as a result. This is where kids are dying for a lack of a 50 cent vaccination or, you know, they're dying of waterborne diseases that are utterly preventable. And it's a man-made construct, actually poverty, because there's plenty of abundance and plenty of opportunity. Um, in our meritocracy, in our world, it's a matter of us building better systems that serve the bottom, the bottom billions. So I'm really grateful to have been a part of those movements. But your, to answer your question about how we got involved, I spent my early career doing humanitarian work, like boots on the ground, building schools, clean water wells, medical dispensary, orphanages, which is something I've learned, as I said, and changed my mindset on significantly. Um, but I, I spent that work, you know, in, um, you know, in places in remote jungles where they'd never seen a white person and, you know, just really like, like got this really hearty education of like what it's like to be in the field. And, and then early on, um, I started having children. My oldest son is 15. I have three little boys. And I was like, man, I can't direct these malaria ridden jungles and be home with these babies nursing. So like I shifted into like administration and fundraising. And I found that I had a knack for the producer role and bringing people together and making things happen, which is really all that it is. It's just getting the right people and then seeing a vision executed and um, and and bringing resources around an idea. And um, I had done music festivals. I'd done concerts. I'd raised money, millions of dollars at that point in charity. And, um, you know, it was, it was going good. And, um, and then I got this cold call from this little group called the Global Poverty Project, which later became Global Citizen. And they pitched me their idea. And I can't take credit for the geniusness of their idea. Um, I just executed on it and then was, I guess, smart enough to triple down on it in my career and make it like, you know, an expertise of mine. But what they said is instead of relying upon ticket sales and merchandise and sponsorship and event, you know, the event profit margins that most charities do, they were like, we're going to leverage constituency. We're going to get top down commitments from the government. At that time, Australia, they wanted to raise money for pol uh, polio eradication, which you know, most people are like polio that was eradicated in the 50s. Well, yeah, it was in most first world countries, but it's still endemic in a couple countries. It's 99% eradicated globally, but it's an infectious disease. And we all learn, unfortunately, about that. I mean, right. you can make assumptions and it can just come back. And so other than smallpox, we've never eradicated a disease. And so this was an exciting and compelling moment to like actually get something done. And um, we wanted the Australian government to give where Bill Gates had earmarked funding to match any government spending. And so again, we use the technology of our generation, social media, we use a petition to have people win concert tickets and then get a top-down commitment. So instead of the, the focus being the general public to give from their pockets, it was use their voice to leverage this top-down commitment. Because at the end of the day, as jaded as we are, we're part of a system where we do in masses hop on a poll on corporations, definitely our politicians, they're our employees, genuinely. Yeah. Um, and and uh, and then high net worth ultra, ultra high net worth families that are putting the resources they listen to the people there they're influenced by the zeitgeist of culture just like we are right they're a part of uh, thought thought leadership but they can be influenced by what they learn and they're educated by so our voices matter in mass and so we use right. these events at Global Citizen and it becoming an advocacy tool. And we ended up that first concert in 2011 that I executive produced called the end of polio. We ended up leveraging $118 million for polio eradication, which was wow. stunning. Yeah. And I was like, I, I never learned something so effective. So we ended up, we ended up doing that in the world's oyster in central park and leveraging billions of dollars. I think today global citizen 10 years in has done 40 billion plus dollars in funding commitments from governments and, and ultra high net worth families. Right. 
foundations of regulations, corporations. Yeah, it's been a stunning thing to watch grow. But what's cool is it led me on this trajectory of being an expert in consulting in what's called the convener model, which is how all of us met through Orphan Ranch, which is a convener of of its own sort relative to what we're working on. Yeah. Well, and I would even you know, some of our listeners are probably going to be even more familiar with Orphan Myth than even beyond Global Citizen, which was, I mean, this just this humongous, you know, endeavor that raised so much money and raised so much awareness. You know, it, it is it is interesting. I think when we're working within the nonprofit space, we will make assumptions like, oh, people know this by now, right? You know, people know about the effects of poverty, right? Oh, people know about, you know, the the issues that are facing orphans and vulnerable children. People know this, right? Nope, people don't like like that's why we have to keep beating the drum. And that's why we do need these larger awareness uh, campaigns and and rallying people and rallying funds. I know we're going to talk about uncharitable here in a couple minutes, which definitely ties in with some of these same themes. But, you know, given that some of our listeners will even be familiar with orphan myth, um, you know, can you just share with us a little bit about, you know, how that type of convener model, that type of approach uh, has entered into the OVC space, you know, that strategy, methodology, impact uh, that you've seen over the last couple of years uh, since the launch of Orphan Myth. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. That's It's so great. You guys were such leaders at Up One Million Home and Think Orphan with Phil and his crew. They've been amazing leaders in, in, in addressing um, the collaboration. Because at the end of the charities, what happens is charities actually end up viciously competing for limited resources, which is a great segue. We can talk a little bit about, you know, Uncharitable, this documentary that I'm so pleased to have executive produced that I'm so grateful you guys reached out to share about. And, you know, this this film and this idea really comes from we demonize overhead in the nonprofit space. Right now, we look at people and we say, I'll only give to this charity if it all goes to the programs, if it goes to the kids, if it's paying salaries or marketing or taking risks or, you know, any kind of you know brick and mortar, any kind of expenses around operating these programs. I don't want it far of it. Like I want it to go directly. And at the core of that question and why that's become so popularized in philanthropy and in giving in the culture of charity is because at the core of it, we're trying to avoid exploitation, which is a wonderful thing, right? We don't want someone saying I'm helping these children in the name of lining our own pockets, right? That that's a terrible, that would be terrible and deceitful and corrupt. But if we if we if you live in this depressing world where you can't hire the best talent and pay them really well, and that the, the the percentage of overhead couldn't grow the pie overall, which is like any other business, these are basic tools. Like McDonald's spends hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising to our kids to have Happy Meals. Why can't we invest in a community of compassion the way we invest in community of consumption? Marketing tells the story. Education changes thinking. Movements are built off of communication and good storytelling and optics and value, that's all overhead. Hiring the best people in the world, right? And I use this great analogy uh, to my students here. I taught a university here, a social entrepreneurship class. And I said, hey, there's a, there's unfortunately a major um, homelessness issue here in Hawaii with how incredibly warm it is. A lot of homeless people end up here. Um, some cities actually in the mainland have even sent their, their homeless on planes here to because they will freeze to death, right? Um, and so we have this prolific homelessness issue. And I always say to the students, like, imagine if we did a little bake sale, right? And it was no overhead. I mean, I came up with the eggs and the bacon and the baking goods and the flour, and you guys did all the work. And then we like got our little, you know, markers and our posters. And we did a little fundraiser, like a lemonade stand. We raised a hundred dollars for homelessness, but zero percent overhead. Or I could put on a major music festival like I did in Central Park that cost $7 million. 
let's say that it raises 14 million at 50% overhead. Which do you think the homeless population would prefer? Or what would society actually benefit most from? So that's a very simple, elegant example of you're asking the wrong questions, right? Demonizing overhead is not going to tell you the utility of impact. In fact, great, you're not getting paid anything. You might be an absolutely useless volunteer. You know, like what about somebody that I pay a hundred grand for that is an absolute phenom that can grow the company by 10x or have impact to affect whatever the issue is, help millions of children have, you know, homes as a result, right? So asking questions of utility, outcome, and impact is way more sophisticated and will not betray you the way percentages of overhead. And so I'll just share that when you asked about about, um, orphan myth, I'll just kind of go back to original question is that it was an idea to get these charities that are usually, you know, in silos singing their own solo song of like, hey, these kids, this issue, let's get educated, let's change, let's be family-based solutions, let's get kids and families this is their plight, let's do something different. Each of them are spending their own limited 10%, 20% societally agreed upon overhead. What if we could combine their efforts? And like the Got Milk commercial from the 90s, you guys remember that with the milk mustache? Oh, for sure, it's man. Great, it's a great meta campaign and convener example. It was a one milk brand's commercial to market milk. It was the entire milk industry at large. And like a rising tide, all the boats come up. All of the milk brands were able to espouse and support and finance and commun- the communicator of, hey, it can, can encourage consumers to drink more milk. And we're doing that here with Orphan Myth. Of, and 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 I, re- I realize the sector is realizing the need for that, right? Let's let's be an acquire and have a sophisticated choir conductor get us to all sing the same song at the same time. We'll be louder together yeah. and also have harmony and it makes it more beautiful and robust and more impactful. So. I think um, that was the intention of Orphan Myth, and I believe the sector is like constantly looking for 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 new ways to do that, which is which is really on deck and really important. So you guys, again, you guys were total leaders in in being the first in to say yes, we see it. So that's incredible, radical love and generosity and other sector thinking. But like Jesus always said, um, you know, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first in all things. You know, there's there's a there's an upside down economy to get behind others. This episode of Think Orphan is brought to you by the Global Development and Justice Master's Program at Multnomah University in Portland, Oregon. This is the graduate program that prepares students to work across the nexus of justice, community development, and peace building work. The Global Development and Justice degree prepares students to work in the U.S. or around the world. And what I appreciate most about this degree program is how it integrates faith into real global development practice and even incorporates an intentional focus on children living in at-risk environments. You've heard Dr. Greg Birch here on the podcast informing our approaches with street-connected youth. Well, he, along with the other faculty at Multnomah, think and act locally and globally, recognizing that both theory and practice must be sensitive to whatever context their students are working in. Graduates from Magda J go on to work at leading global nonprofits like World Vision, Loom International, World Relief, and yes, even One Million Home. The Masters in Global Development and Justice can be taken either online or on campus, and they're currently accepting applications for fall 2023. Visit multinoma.edu front slash Magda J. That's multinoma.edu front slash M-A-G-D-J or click the link in our show notes to learn more and apply. Especially knowing all that went in and goes into 
Orphan Myth, all that has gone into all the different things you've worked on. We could talk for hours and hours on all those things, but we do want to go into Uncharitable a bit today, um, a bit deeper than those other things, just because it is such a incredible documentary. It's uh, it's just a incredibly important. I mean, you've you've gone into a little bit on the kind of the the overhead conversation and and what is a huge part of the of the documentary. Um, but this this movie really stems from uh, a TED talk that was given several years ago uh, by Dan Pallotta, underscores the structural disadvantages that nonprofits deal with uh, compared to for-profit companies. I remember when I watched that TED talk originally, I looked at my wife and it was one of the two times that I've said, this is something I've been thinking for so long and I'm, I'm glad somebody put it there way more concise than I would have ever done it. And uh, the other was when Helping Hurts, when I read that by Brian Fickert. And Man. she's like, what are you talking about? She didn't know I was so excited. And it's understandable. She doesn't run a nonprofit. But hearing <laughs> what he said, he, he put it so well in that TED Talk. And then this this film is able to expand it out and go deeper into all the, all the areas. But the TED Talk actually talks about um, really what the disadvantages are of, a, of, a, of nonprofits. Now, I would say that's an even misnomer disadvantages. I just think it's perceived disadvantages, right? And how they um, under, undermine a nonprofit's ability to tackle wide-scale issues. Can you talk about those, what those diff- disadvantages or perceived disadvantages are briefly, and then we'll we'll be able to kind of pick apart and um, go deeper into each of them. Yeah, thank you, Phil, and thank you so much for your guys' uh, support of the film and the, the message. You know that, like, I think when people watch the documentary, it, which is called Uncharitable, which is the also the book that Dan Flotta wrote, which is titled Uncharitable. And as you said, the TED Talk, which is titled The Way We Think of Charity is Dead Wrong, which in our documentary, the CEO of TED actually says that it is the most persuasive talk in the history of TED stages, which is Ooh. a big thing to say. That's a very big thing to say. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so I think what's really profound to me is the fact that we were able to take a 90 minute expiration of this as you said, beautifully concise talk. So if your listeners, all they do is look up Dan Pallotta, the way we think of charities did wrong and watch that epic, they will understand this idea. But if you want to go deeper and have a journey of understanding the lived experiences of those disadvantages that you just mentioned, um, this film will do that. And I think what I've found is we've done screenings around the country. Now we've done little private screenings. We're about to launch it. We were actually going to do our premiere at the end of this month, but we, with in partnership with Global Citizen, they were so they're an epicenter of so many of hundreds of charities and, and issues in the UN and so um, in the entertainment industry. And so they they got wanted to get behind it, which is a great vote of confidence. And so we're actually pushing it to September to be um, actually released in 120 different um, city, cities in a theatrical release. It's now gotten some serious attention from the entertainment industry is now being considered like a legitimate potential like Oscar run film, like going through theater and all the stuff. So I'm kind of beyond elated and thrilled. Yeah. I'm so grateful for all the people that have gotten behind it. And as you mentioned, Dan has done an excellent job articulating something that everyone has a lived experience if you've been in the nonprofit sector. And he did an excellent job communicating that. And I think the film does that in a really robust way. Um, one of the things that's so profound to me is that, you know, you watch these these screenings, as I mentioned, these nonprofit people, and they'll just start weeping. They just feel so seen. It's like some, it's like somebody. It's like somebody is saying the thing that they wanted to say. And the truth is we sometimes in the nonprofit sector perpetuate, we will lead with, oh my gosh, our overhead, our overhead's low. And that's mm-hmm. like the way we start our conversation. It's somehow right. that makes us worthy. 
of some donation. You know, the fact that yeah, our overhead right. low. Like, that is the worst. I want to hear how many lives you're helping. How are right. you changing the societal ills and problems that are that are heartbreaking? There are people dying right now. We need to be way more inspiring than I kept my overhead low. You know what right. I mean? So, so I think like show me the scale of your dreams, the innovation. It takes risk. That takes capital, right? Marketing, hiring the best talent. We don't want the best people. We want the the, the best available people. We want the best people, whatever they cost, right? right? And so, yeah, the, the disadvantages that nonprofit have, it's almost like there's two rule books we talk about in the film. The, the for-profit sector gets to hire the best people, spend money to make money, spend money on marketing, right? Um, take risks. Amazon lost money for deck was was in the negative and or, you know, not making any profits for a decade and for shareholders to wait out for the incredible outcome later, right? Right. Nonprofits can't do that. If you don't show how you're making the impact today, you can't. You can't invest back in your business and growth for scale and charities need to because as much as the private sector has now caught on and said you know what let's create this thing called social enterprise where we're gonna just like go have a for purpose for purpose for profit business so we're gonna unabashedly pay everyone well and use this private sector levers that the nonprofit sector can't there's some things you can't monetize you yeah you can do one-for-one models like tom shoes and yeah you can make money off of the back of technology that helps address medical interventions or whatever there's all kinds of stuff you can do but there's certain stuff you can't you can't deal with the, you can't make money off of foster children or the trauma of ptsd ridden veterans you know like some stuff needs to actually be from society handling the issue as the aftermath of our system right and the brokenness of the immediate like let's go a further upstream like we're trying to do with orphan med and one million home and address the issue better but meanwhile there's carnage at the end and we need to we need to address that now and that that's aid and that that the charity's always gonna have a place for uh society solving some of these major issues and solving some of these heartbreaking dynamics so they so there's an inability to uh spend money in terms of risk and innovation that's heartbreaking and cannibalizing the second thing is hiring talent paying people we talk about oh my gosh you know this this executive of nonprofits paying himself half a million dollars to imagine how disgusting. And I understand from a perspective of an individual that has been away for whatever, well, no, you shouldn't be making that. But what if that person brought in, like the examples we gave in the film, billions of dollars to address right. issues in our society? Would you pay half? Of course you would. In any for-profit in anywhere, you'd go, yeah, I'll give you that big of a salary. If you can put someone on the cover of Forbes for inventing violent video games, why can't we put someone on the cover of Forbes for ending domestic violence? It's crazy to me that we're that we can't that we somehow demonize people for doing well for making the world better. I'd way rather someone getting millions of dollars who are solving these kids going without love and safety and help, you know, um, security and all their basic needs met. I'd rather that person become a billionaire than somebody putting hoops, you know, in a basket getting millions. Yeah. I mean, what are yep. like what is our societal value? So, so that's the second one. The third one is, um, is marketing and storytelling and and growing and you know to, you have to be able to tell what you're doing well and that costs money and that's all considered overhead so if you hire excellent marketing you spend money on ads you spend money um to produce excellent materials and content and product and all kinds of stuff like that that's all considered overhead fundraising is another place that is utterly despised upon in the nonprofit sector and yet that's how you're growing the resources to fund the people that run the programs. Right. right. You know, we there's an interview, a gentleman in, in our documentary that says, who do you think runs the programs? Like, who are the people like 
if your logic is just get it directly, why don't you just go throw money on the streets to the homeless? See how well that works. You know what I mean? There's a reason why these these programs are ran because they're trying to address very complicated issues. And these are experts who have MBAs and PhDs and they're brilliant thinkers. People have turned away from amazing financial, like the two of you, brilliant, amazing leaders and men who could be making amazing money in the private sector instead decided to make your life be about your mission. And why why would we not enable you to have the abundance to like be able to meet your basic needs? And suddenly you're now in the same financial position of the people you're trying to help. That's yeah. crazy. Like, yeah. why can we put our own oxygen masks on? So those are kind of the major themes and issues that we explore in the film. Yeah, and those are, it, and you, you can go, obviously, go watch the, watch the film when you're able to find it. Um, hopefully you'll be able to get it soon after this or even when this is released and may be available by then. But one one of the things I, I skipped over, I kind of did it on purpose because, you know, uh, a lot of people probably don't know uh, what your role, well, they, they probably don't know what your role is because you haven't told them, but they probably don't even know what your role is in the sense that they don't know what an executive producer actually does. I've found that most people see that. We've seen it in every movie credits that we've ever watched, but can you just explain um, what your role as an executive producer, what, what you do, what you did to bring this, this film to fruition. And, um, yeah, and then we'll, then we'll go from there. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, that's so true. I mean, it's funny cause it means different things in different scenarios. So an executive producer in, um, film versus like live events versus concerts, it's, it's interesting, but in most instances, it's the person that brings the money and, and the talent, right. And people that, that, the people that are actually executing the job. So for example, in the film Uncharitable, I raised uh, probably 90% of the funding for the film to be to be brought. And we actually were so lucky. Some films, you get investors. We actually had benefactors who underwrote the film entirely. So you know, these are these are high net worth individuals who gave major gifts from their family foundations to enable yeah. the message that believed in it, which is cool because those are peers, right? Those That's our audiences, the benefactors yeah. to change their thinking and they were the ones yeah. leading on it. Um, and then also finding talent. So for example, Meredith Blake, who's the, um, our current impact producer and is going to run our campaign side. Now the marketing side of the film, um, she, you may have heard of her, whatever your political persuasion is, you've definitely heard, probably heard of the film inconvenient truth, which is a documentary that, you know, got attention for, um, and, and that was Meredith's work. So we've hired her because we feel that this needs the same gravitas of awareness and, um, so hiring other producers, you know, helping get certain talent, helping with the marketing strategy, all that stuff. Executive producers kind of wear that hat of like, you know, a CEO, so to speak. But in, in the film world, like uh, the the director is the one who actually makes the film. I mean, they're the one who actually tells the story. And that was Stephen Gyllenhaal. Some of you may be familiar with his children, Maggie and Jake Gyllenhaal. So it was some Hollywood royalty there. And they he did an excellent job telling, you know, uh, these complex stories in a way that keeps you entertaining, draws emotion. And, and then Dan, I mean, all of this was off the back of Dan's work and his legacy of his life, his, his Ted talk, his, his, um, he spent 20 plus years trying to change the way we think about charity. And, um, I'm just so glad that we've given this additional tool and we're seeing this moment where there's getting some real, um, amplification and support because it's really deserved and it's an idea totally worth spreading. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It is an idea worth spreading. And, and to me, it, it kind of, if, if people really uh, could, could, could envision and, uh, uh, you know, this message and actually put it into practice, 
it, it it is one of those ideas that could radically shift not only nonprofit like in general like as a sector but it could actually radically shift society because it's well, it, it's the nonprofits it's the charitable organizations <laughs> that are addressing what we often view as kind of societal ills you know you know it's it's nonprofits that are running drug rehab centers it's nonprofits that are you know uh, helping the homeless it's nonprofits that are helping orphan and vulnerable children or mm-hmm. or helping uh, you know communities access water i mean if we could actually get behind nonprofits and people that are pursuing um you know the best for the broader community and actually resource them i mean we could actually see dramatic societal shift and and i know that that's that that's what you guys are going for and then charitable you know i as far as like you know helping professionals you know we may have people that are listening i know that we have people that are listening that are working for small global especially orphan care organizations um and they might be living in the u.s and you know they have x amount of dollars and and it's a pretty modest income um, and yet they're doing their very best. You know, here I, I live in the Seattle area. There's um, a nonprofit up here uh, that recently, I mean, I heard them on NPR and they kind of got some play because they they said everybody at our nonprofit will make at least $70,000. And yeah. that was just kind of this revolutionary thing like, oh my goodness, we're having a minimum pay. Okay, it's expensive to live in the Seattle area. Like, you know, like, and uh, I, that's that's coming from me. We've been a, Recently, my wife took up a, a job, but we've been a single income family and we got four kids, you know, so it's like it, it takes money. It takes money to try to live in some of these places. But um, I, it was just it was so noteworthy to people that this nonprofit would at least set a minimum that all of their staff would make at least 70K to live and serve in in an area that is that is expensive to live in. I mean, so but those are the types of shifts that we should be going after and when we talk about overhead we shouldn't hear like oh that's bad what we should think is we're going to make sure that the people that are actually executing on the mission have what they need in order to to continue to execute on the mission you know and and to and to realize the impact uh that that the mission statement points towards you know um and one of the things that i kind of want to get your thoughts on as well Lindsay, um and something that I don't have a ton of, um, I I mean, at 1 million home, we're not a risk averse organization. So, so we kind of look at, you know, our portfolio, whether that's, you know, partners that we're going with or, you know, things that, you know, we'll work in tech and media and some of these things that are a little outside of a lot of nonprofit space. But even beyond that, I mean, when it comes to the financial piece, there is this risk component. Um, can you just maybe speak to that a little bit? I mean, like what role should risk play for nonprofits? Yeah, that's great, Reddit. And like I, I said, this is one of the reasons I love One Million Homes so much. You guys are truly your your innovators and you guys are leaders and you take that risk and you're like, we'll try, we'll put our aims out there, we'll put our necks out there. And that's what it takes to create innovation. So the risk dynamic is um, you know, trying things so that we can learn if they if they work or not, right? Like in in so many of the private sector that's that's where the gold is made is in that lean startup it's like hurry up and fail like find out that oh that product didn't work id 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 but in nonprofit, you're you're totally uh 
looked down upon and fired. It's like, wait, you tried something and failed? Like you wasted these sacred funds, you're out. And it's like, what if that was the thing that led to the thing? I mean, I can tell you my own actual story where I put on a music concert, one of the first major festivals. It was the first festival I did in concerts and they were successful. And it was the first festival I did before I got involved with Global Citizen. And we were just doing the traditional model model that I was speaking to where whatever the profit margins were, right? And the concert actually lost money, the music festival. The music festival lost money. It was the first time I'd ever done anything that like lost money. It was devastating because I'd never worked harder on anything. Lost about a hundred grand. And I worked on it for like 10 months and I was relying all on volunteers, right? We had like no overhead, speaking of which, and you know, it was really difficult and I was devastated. And I came home and at, at three in the morning in tears, the board members had to write the checks to pay all the vendors off. So I was like, literally like the charity ended up being in debt a hundred grand. I mean, I was horrified. Nice. It was called Candlelight Serenade. We had like this little daily, but it had like 311 and third eye blind and dashboard confessional as the like headliners. Wow. That'll, that'll yeah, that's an me. awesome concert right there. It, Wait, say I, those bands again. Yeah. 311, third eye blind, dashboard confessional. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You, or is that back in the day? Yeah. Okay. And so I, I would, I, I would dig that concert I, as a nine, as a nineties alt rock guy. That would be right? great. Good band. Good band. <laughs> Sorry. Tangent. Yeah. So yeah. Free love and crushed it. Uh, so we ended up coming home and I, and I like fell prostrate on the ground in my living room and I was crying and I just felt like an utter failure. And I couldn't believe that I had lost the sacred friends and I, how do I show my face and how do I get out of debt for a charity with, you know, I mean, I was just devastated and I literally heard like, in my head, this profound, I believe it was God talking to me, whatever anybody might believe, but I just heard, pick yourself up, make things go right. You know, like it's okay. Like you're, this isn't about you. This isn't about you. So get up and make things go right. So I like the next day I was like, I don't even know how to make things go right. I don't know what I did wrong. I did all the things I did at my concerts that made money. So how do I, how do I make this go right? So I, 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 I was thinking, I'm like, you know, who was, who was on the best music festival in the world? And it was Coachella. And I cold called Golden Voice, which is the producers of Coachella, and wrote an email like, hey, I'm the stay-at-home lady that put this charity thing and they're all volunteers and I epically failed and I don't know what I did wrong, but I want to learn and you're the best, you're Michael Jordan of your craft. Anyway, uh, Bill Fold, one of the founders, there's Paul Tillett and Bill Fold, Bill Fold called me on the phone, returned my phone call, I think within a day or two and and said like, hey, hey, I'd love to talk to you, which was uh, another lesson about you know, help people that you don't think can help you because you never know because we're how this turned around full circle. But he ended up at, telling me that actually that's a fabulous job. You only lost a hundred thousand the first year of music festival. That's phenomenal. He's like, I lost <laughs> for the 10 years, millions at Coachella, right? Again, oh, wow. investing back in the business, you're building a brand and a business. You're not promoting the one event. He goes, this is the difference between a concert and a festival concert you're promoting the artist and there and you're going on their brand affinity the festival you're building your own brand affinity it takes about three years usually to monetize Good. and so he's like that's a fabulous job and sadly we didn't build the purview or the runway with the nonprofit and the board and the story and the paradigm because it was the blind leading the blind because it was my first time my first rodeo but like if we kept going it probably would have been a very successful profitable music festival in year three you know what i mean yeah. so it was pretty cool this vote of confidence and he ended up actually helping me with the end of polio concert by connecting me to the bright people in Australia where we ended up leveraging 118. And then later Golden Voice and AEG became our producers of Global Citizen, which leveraged billions. So this fun story of like, you know, how failure led to ultimate success, right? Yeah. And 
if I just had the room or the, the, the grace or the, the space in the sector where I, you know, luckily in that case, God kind of popped me out of myself or I probably would never try it again in that case. Right. So right. it was pretty fabulous, but that's an example of, of risk. You know, this is really an issue of scaling. So I, we just got off a phone today with a donor who's, who's going to write us a $200,000 check for the, um, marketing of this film all overhead, by the way, unabashedly. Right. Um, and so, uh, he was on the phone and he said that the film, his name is Deloitte Hans, an amazing man from Utah. And he'd already given funding for, to help make the film. This is a secondary investment with us, which is so credible donation, I should say. But he, uh, he was sharing how after he watched the film, he became so moved. He'd seen the TED talk and understood and met with us, but then the film even further, he goes, I'm like converted. Like I am baptized. Like I'm full all in. He's like, this is a totally different, um, paradigm. And he just said, because of you guys, I've been funding work in Ukraine. And there's a woman who's been building homes for the families that are in exile, you know, that are currently in forced migration or refugees. She's been building homes for people whose homes were bonded or currently homeless families, women, children, because all the men are at war fighting. And so she, it's women building the homes. And she said, they can only build so many homes because they can't pay the builders. So nobody can, they have to have their day job and they can only work on the homes in their spare time. They have to still provide for their families and feed. And so it was just like this paradigm shift where he said, oh, I'm going to pay all the, I'm going to pay all the salaries. I want, I want all my money to go to overhead, which enabled them to now, now they're scaling and getting hundreds of homes. Right. So this idea of, of, scale is really what it is. If you can pay the right people and you can get more impact, then we can help more people. It's just kind of a dumb, smart idea that for some reason we've been caught in this old way is from our Puritan roots that are like, you can't benefit while doing good. That's evil because it's the way we penance for our sin, you know, in the past. We don't need to think that narrow-mindedly. Like God is a God of radical abundance and we can be, we can be much more thoughtful about how to solve problems. That's good. Yeah, you know, and that that risk idea definitely comes from a scarcity mindset, the, the the lack of risk that we're allowing nonprofits to take. And I can I can tell you as a small nonprofit uh, president, CEO, who's been doing it for about 13 years, and we had a novel model in Honduras and selling that to people, you know, and then things don't work, right? And when things don't work, you lose donors because they're like, well, you must have messed up. You know, rather than, hey, you know, this is this is risky. And as I mean, in that movie, it was so great. They talk about like what Waterworld lost two hundred million dollars for Disney and they go on Tomorrowland, lost all this movie. And people are like, what are those movies? My wife's like, I don't, I don't even know those movies. I go, exactly. I went and saw one of them and they were, they were terrible. But but that's the thing is you're allowed to do that because it's the four. Well, it's their money. They can do with it whatever they want. The reality is this is money that we're trying to do really, really good stuff with. But you got to try things in order to to see if they work to, to pilot things to death like you do with literally everything else you got to prove concept and in and we have these again the two rule books the two ideas and as as a a nonprofit director who's going out and and i get it you know you're, you're raising money from people who are you know most people that you're going to small nonprofit you're not going to the biggest biggest donors typically um because you're not doing the biggest biggest things and you don't really have access to a lot of those people and so you realize it's, you know, they're hard-earned money and your stuff you were probably given before you went out in the nonprofit sp- sphere. So you feel that pressure as a nonprofit director as well, which I think that side of it too needs to be, we need to, we need to get over that too as nonprofit directors to say, look, we are, 
we are doing great things. And this is what I tell people all the time when they're raising money is, do you believe what you're doing is having incredible kingdom impact? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. 100% or I wouldn't be doing it. Like, then why don't you tell people that? Why don't you be unabashed? Like, just don't be afraid to ask them for stuff. And don't be afraid to take risks in doing it. Don't be afraid to go out there and get after it. And they're like, oh, I've never thought of it that way. I said, yeah, well, you know, think of it that way. Because if you, and if you, if you don't say yes with that exuberance, then you might want to think about doing something else because you could make a lot more money doing something else. It would be a lot easier to do some of these other things because what you're going to do if you're getting involved with orphan and vulnerable children, it's ridiculously hard. It's so nuanced. You're so frustrated all the time because you try stuff and all you get is people going, well, why'd you do it that way? Why don't you help people in the U.S.? Why are you so focused on other countries? Why don't you care about this thing? Why don't you care about that thing? Well, I know there's people over here who aren't getting, oh, well, yeah, there's homeless populations that are a big problem in our You're like, what the heck? I can't win. If I do one thing, these people are mad. If I do this other. So I look at it and go, this, that's why this film is so important is because I think it speaks both to the donors and to the nonprofit directors and saying, yeah. hey, first of all, and- give yourself some grace. Not only grace, but give yourself some cojones, maybe. I don't know how that's going to translate <laughs> on the transcript. But to go out and do something, right? And to go after it and and to realize that you're not lesser than because you're doing something in the nonprofit space and not just, you'll get your kudos, you know. It just, it, I think people look at it, like you said, is if you're getting the reward here, then you're not going to get them in heaven. Well, you know, that's ridiculous. I think, yeah. you know, that applies to some other things that this isn't talking about. I mean, that's not what we're talking about here. So right. anyway, do you have any thoughts on that? I just, that's my little soapbox there, but I didn't know. I think, any, I think, I think we that? hit a nerve. I think we hit a nerve, Phil. That was, it's that was well good, nerved. man. This <laughs> is something that I've, you know, it's, it's been a, it's been, I mean, it's frustrating. Yeah. It's frustrating. Well, and I, th- and I think well, I'm probably speaking to a lot of people who listen to this, right? Yeah, it's well earned that frustration because you've lived the realities of being strongholded when you see how much you could do or you could be freed up and. And again, like the stress, like I, at every screening, I make them people in nonprofit, run nonprofits or work for nonprofits stand up and we give them an applause. You know, during the pandemic, our awareness of the people that bag our groceries and the first time responders and, you know, the teachers for the first time in society was like, oh man, we really need them. Man, they really make things work. They're important. We need the same kind of appreciation movement for the nonprofit sector. The people that are day in, day out, giving their hearts, dealing with complicated issues, people with incredible suffering, running towards suffering, choosing a life to run towards suffering. I can't think anything more Jesus than that. And they don't get faint. They don't get a raise. They don't get paid minimum wages. And when asked for more money, they're looked like a pariah. Like, I don't understand. I think we have to stop this. It's asinine. And honestly, I believe it comes from the enemy because what he usually does is he takes things that are really good and then twist them slightly again the heart of it is we don't want people exploiting we don't want people to say they're helping others when they're not when they're just frauding us and exploiting and taking advantage of course we don't that's not 99 percent of the people right. in nonprofit sector. there are right. some of them like unequivocally and actually we should sign it shine a light on them even more so that's right in fact you could get better talent we could have better uh transparency and better communication and better you know what i mean like and so, um, you know, I think that a lot of times that, you know, the more robust that, that we can make the talent that comes into the sector, we'll solve those problems. Those people will be rooted out, you know. Yeah. And to your point, um, Phil, I think you said, you know, there's a lot of nonprofits that are small and they're just like ideating along, living along. 
And the truth is, if we allowed there to be overhead being no problem, then bigger charities would grow and it would it would actually get rid of a lot of the redundancy. Because the, like the private sector, the best would win. The most incredible leadership, the best talents, the best ideas would actually take market share and grow. Right. And they could appropriately, which would mean a lot of the little guys would be wet out and they need to be, right? Because the pro that there there is a ton of duplication and waste. And 95% of charities fail in the first five years. And that is tragic, right? right. So those who actually are worthy stewards of the resources we give will lead out. And I think that's another reason for this. So these conversations yeah. are fabulous. And thank you for for saying like, hey, we take for granted sometimes what people don't know or they do know, right? And right. and I think having these conversations are just so you know so paramount right now because we have a lot of need in the world. Right. And as much as it's becoming more abundant in many ways and there's a lot of great things being solved and technology, there's still so much we need to do. And it's not time to, you know, keep doing what we were doing, right? Cause it expect a different result. That's insanity. Yeah. Right. Well, really well said. And, you know, we definitely do want to keep that conversation going. So as was mentioned, the TED Talk was started by Dan Pallotta, uh, who has uh, quite the portfolio himself of raising money for good causes. Uh, so you guys can definitely check the TED Talk. We'll put it in the show notes of Think Orphan. But for Uncharitable, the film, you mentioned it's going to be released later this year. Uh, you know, as people are listening to this and they want to learn more, what might they be able to anticipate? Where can they kind of follow along uh, for when the film might become accessible to them, Lindsay? Yeah, thanks, Brandon, for this opportunity. So they can go to uncharitablemovie.com and actually put their email into our mailing list and then be av- find out when it's available for screenings in their town, when it'll be in theatrical release, and when it'll be available on video on demand, which it will. Right now you can watch the trailer, you can share the trailer, you can have the conversation, share the TED Talk, which is fabulous. It's a great place to start. And if any of the nonprofit listeners are like, I want to watch this film and I want to show it to my board and I want to do a private screening, you can also, you know, email us through the website portal um, and say, hey, I'd like to figure out how to get involved and see a private screener potentially screen this for my board. We, ha- we have we want this to be used as an incredible tool for the nonprofit sector to grow their awareness and grow their funding and grow their um, community support in a way that maybe they never have before. So, yeah, That's I do cool. believe. I do believe we can see some incredible things in this next year. It's crazy, like to have pushed it back because it was supposed to be live and then people could start seeing it. But um, it was for good reason. It, it would just meant it would have a bigger, a bigger percussion cap at the at the backside. So I'm excited for that. Thank you again for having me on and the amazing work you guys do. You guys are heroes. Like I do, I just am so grateful for people like you and your families. The sacrifice that it is. And, you know, to me, I mean, I do believe there will be ultimate rewards in heaven beyond your wildest dreams because of it. And I think there are rewards now spiritually, but I wish that there'd be more financial support. And so any listeners, if you want to send like gift cards or Venmo, Brandon and Phil today, personally, not for the charity, like say, hey, go get yourself a food massage, bro, you know, or buy your wife a a bouquet of flowers for all she's put up with or whatever it may be. I think, you know, that'd be my, my wish. Think Orphan's not known for fundraising, but uh, yeah, maybe like maybe it. we'll put our Venmo handles uh, in the show notes. No problem. And I, I think that's why Lindsay Thank is you, able Lindsay. to raise a lot of money. Good stuff. It's, I think my wife needs more of their bouquet of flowers, though. I think it's a whole lot more, but she puts up with a lot with me. I don't know. Um, so anyway we you know Lindsay, we have a couple questions we ask everybody to finish up and you know thank you for that. Thank you for for your encouraging words. appreciate you. Um, uh, but what, what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love 
Orphan and Vulnerable Children with Excellence. You know, it's interesting. Um, it wasn't necessarily a book about the sector. It's actually a book called Bonds That Make Us Free by a gentleman named C. Terry Warner, um, who is one of the founders of the Arbinger Institute. And he talks about this idea of in in, in our human experience, we can be really self-deceptive, right? Like we can lie to ourselves. It's like actually really what sin is, sin at the end of the day is a wrong thinking that's not aligned with God, right? We have to change our thinking. That is repentance to turn 180 degrees from what we we're doing. When we change our thinking, we change our behavior, right? Um, and so he talks about this idea of being in relationship with others as I, you versus I, it. Oftentimes we see people as a vehicle, maybe the donor that we're working with, you know, or maybe it's uh, a celebrity we want to get involved in our cause or maybe, you know, whatever it may be. Um, or we can see them as a, uh, a monster, you know, this person that has made my life hard, my terrible manager or boss or my my annoying client or even our spouses right our loved ones right we have this i i it and we turn that we dehumanize the people that are around us and they suddenly become just like this cardboard cutout of a lived experience human being we don't see ourselves in it but i you is very much like you know seeing ourselves in the individual being other centric having an awareness of their humanity even those who do horrific things you know even those who are are our enemies on every in every sense of the world word and, you know, I hear some of the times these stories that come out of some of these big cultural moments, like what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, and hearing these moments where they're they're seeing the humanity of the enemy on the other side, and they're actually engaging with that person as a lived human being that suffers just like them, that has basic needs and wants and desires just like them. And that book was so transformative for me in my life and helping me understand relationships and people and things and um, I think it just built me in, I already had, like, I already was in love with charity work and being involved in good causes, but that book helped me just have this deeper empathy and understanding my experience in the world interpersonally and helping me better understand the teammates that I go down this road with in my work and my life, my family. And, um, so I'm, I've really been blessed by that book. So, you know, to see ourselves in these kids, you know, is such, uh, is such a profound thing. To, you know, I think we all know what it feels like to not belong. I, I actually gave a TEDx talk about this very idea, um, an orphan myth, and I shared the the paradigm that, you know, there's moments in my life where I felt I didn't belong. I think some of us have in various situations, whether it is professionally or in families, or if we move to a new place, some people have had it more um, extensively than others. But at the end of the day, you know, to not belong is such a, a painful human experience and that we want to make sure these kids have a place that they belong. So that I thought that I would say the the greatest book that influenced me. Yeah, we actually use that uh, leadership and self deception. Um, it's one of the few books that uh, I, I that does not have an author on the front. It's just the Arbinger Institute, which I liked it even more because of that. But we actually went through that with my team in Honduras um, because it impacted me so much as well. So that's that's such a phenomenal book um, for so many reasons. Great, I, I love that. Um, so we'll have that in the show notes as well. What, the last question, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children and families with excellence? You know, um, it probably, you know, there's so many, they've been so influential. Um, but I would probably say Joe Ritchie, who was my mentor, who passed away about a year ago. We started this journey together. Um, he ended up becoming a board member to Hopeland when I first got involved with Deb Jackman, who set me on this journey. So influential. It's so much credit for the trajectory of where I've been the last nine years. 
But he went side by side with being a partner in this effort with the Fox River Foundation, funding amazing organizations and causes and supporting Orphan Myth and many others. Um, oh, my cute dog. Hi, bud. My kids, <laughs> my kids are home and they forgot to hold them downstairs. Sorry about that. But I was yeah. going to say, um, our Joe, Joe just passed away in COVID a year ago. We miss him tremendously. In fact, this is him over here. Look at him right there. There's my buddy. So he was my, my hero, one of my best friends. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I remember when I first, sorry, I get emotional. When I first met him, we were actually at the Jackman's home in their home. There was like 12 of us sitting around the table. Hugh Jackman was so charming and darling and like loving on his wife the way only he does and talking about how for a profession he saves the world, you know, as Wolverine. And we were going around and having everyone introduce themselves and tell their stories. And we got to Joe and I knew who Joe was, who, mind you, was the greatest options trader who ever lived and who had advised heads of state and lifted literally countries out of um, poverty, lifted the GDP of Rwanda by, by 12% as the chairman of the Economic Development Board. And as um, as Joe, as the table went around and introduced himself, it got to Joe and he said, oh, I do some work in Africa and um, I have a background in finance, but I want to talk about these kids. And he like leaned in and he was so not interested in talking about himself. It wasn't an act. Um, and I just was like, how do I, how do I um, have that kind of heart rub off on these? So I spent like the, the next decade, like basically at his feet, trying to have that humility and goodness and care for others <clears throat> influenced by life. And I, I, I absolutely can say it did. So I'm really grateful for him. Dude, thanks yeah. for letting me share. Absolutely. So we're, we're all grateful for Joe and love his family. And Anthony's a good friend. And um, yeah, we all, we all miss him. We all miss him. I know it's a lot. We were much closer than I was, but the little exposure I was able to have with him, I definitely miss him and, and what he, what he brought to this, uh, this, this sector for sure. I mean, what, a, what an amazing man. Um, yeah, and same thing when I met him, he was, he was basically like, if I wouldn't, have, people had told me about him or something, I, I would have thought he was just some older guy who was helping out with some stuff, you know, who came along with his son or something. Cause he was there with Anthony, just talking about Anthony and, and he was, I think it was with Brian, uh, Mavis with the, with the, uh, American, America's, America's kids, kids belong. Yeah. And, uh, right. we had a dinner or something at a, at a CAFO or I think it was a Q. I don't know, something. But it was, yeah, it was just one of those times where we were sitting there at a dinner and this guy shows up and it was, yeah, it was just so unassuming. And you, to you, to your point, like it was so refreshing um, to, to know that it wasn't about him. It was about, you know, what, what is God doing and how can he be a part of it? And, and that was super encouraging, super encouraging. So, hey, thank you so much, Lindsay. Thank you for, uh, I love that last question because often we do get uh, people getting, going really deep and, and, I, and I appreciate that and I appreciate you going there. And I appreciate all that you're doing for this with this with this uncharitable film and everything else and just your heart. Thank you for being you and appreciate you. You guys are so wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thanks again to Lindsay. That was such a such a great conversation for so many reasons. So important. As as you heard, I got on a little soapbox. I do that every so often on this show. Those of you who know me. You know, passion is not something I lack. And um, now that the video is here, you see how much I use my hands too. So um, knowing that if you've watched this show, nothing will surprise you. But especially these topics, they're so important because I do know that if we hamstring the, the nonprofits, then we don't get as much great work as we could 
And, and it can't just be that the only way a nonprofit survives is if there's really rich people that fund all the, the overhead expenses, which is typically, it seems like that's the only thing anymore that works unless it's a world vision or compassion, right? And so um, that's something that I, I've just been very, very strongly for. And so I, I just really appreciated this conversation. I really appreciated the, the film, but I don't know. What'd you think, Brennan? Well, I, I really, this is, this is, this whole overhead myth and, uh, you know, all of this kind of nonprofit stuff, um, it, it really strikes a chord with me. Um, you know, having worked essentially my entire career in the nonprofit space and, you know, I've, I've seen the overhead myth and, you know, these other components kind of creep their way in with different organizations that I've worked with. Um, and it is, it is a bit debilitating. Um, but I really, this documentary getting to, to screen it, I, I just was just blown away. You know, I, I think you had mentioned there that it was kind of like a amen moment, you know, when you watch Dan Pilata's Ted talk, um, you know, that, that's how I feel about this documentary and just how important it is that we really kind of rethink, um, you know, and, and there's so many things that are in play for sure. Like we understand how market economies work. We understand like all these different kind of components. And, you know, one of the things, um, that Lindsay said, it, it um, was looking at this from like an abundance standpoint and, and even how she said poverty is a man-made, uh, uh, problem, which is interesting because, you know, Jesus says the poor will be with you always. And, um, that's not though, th that's kind of like more of a description rather than a prescription, <laughs> you know, that's not really, that's not really God's desire. And, um, I just, you know, there's a quote that, that I always think about. I'm pretty sure it was Shane Claiborne, uh, who's somebody that I read and follow where he says, um, you know, there's enough, uh, uh, there's more than enough for everyone's need, but not everyone's greed. And there is a, kind of this component where if we were honest and everybody was up for giving sacrificially to address these things and we didn't hamstring nonprofits and all of this, like we could actually see incredible impact. You know, I know the sustainable development goals that she brought up. And, you know, working in the global development space, it feels like the goalposts are always being pushed back. You know, it wasn't too long ago we were talking about the Millennium Development Goals, which then became the Sustainable Development Goals. So I, I do understand that these are big, intractable problems, but we do need larger scale to actually address them. So that's that's what I just really uh, appreciate about Uncharitable and, and this whole messaging. Yeah, you know, and I'm not saying just people should just give blindly and not give. I mean, like she said, there there are the, the small percentage of people who are doing it um, and they're not, they're not legit. And that, that's, that's one thing. And then there's also other people who are doing it very inefficiently and are not, they should not be doing stuff like that. But on the flip side, I get frustrated. I, I did start as a lawyer and I was billing out at 250 to $400 an hour, depending on when you're talking a first year lawyer billing at 250 to 300. Now it's probably 500 an hour. I don't even know what it is. I heard, I heard recently they had paid $250,000 a year, their first year out of law school. You don't know jack squat your first year out of law school. You're just learning how to do this stuff. I mean, you're basically wearing diapers to get in, there in the metaphorical sense. You know, you you literally don't know how to, how to practice law at that point. You have to learn on the job. You've learned a little bit in law school, nothing that prepares you for law. And so, but they're paying you $250,000 a year. And then we have a, non, a nonprofit lead who's working their tail off and has probably been doing it for 10, 15 years. 
And if they make six figures, they actually are under investigation because they're doing something completely unethical and wrong. Like right. there's something wrong there, right? That, yeah. But that's where our society has gone, you know? And, uh, you know, and, and like you said, these are all a result, including poverty being man-made is a result of the fall, right? Like we are broken human beings and we're broken in what we value. We're broken in what we, um, how we see different things. And, you know, and we also are prone to um, accept norms that become institutions in our societies. And one of the institutions in our society is nonprofit slash ministry directors should not make much money, no matter what right. they're doing. It doesn't matter. And that yeah, goes to pastors, that goes to everybody else, you know? And um, anyway, that that's that's just a reality. Those are those are things that, you know, and I think people even will be rubbed the wrong way with unsharable. Like, oh, that's just, they're just money grabbing. Anybody who knows nonprofit directors knows these people are so smart, they could be doing something else, no question. But they have chosen to do whatever it is. I mean, 99, she said, 99% of the time, they've chosen to do what it is because they have a passion for it and it's something that they know is something that if they're not doing it, probably no one else is going to step up and do it. Right. And you know, the, the, the really big nonprofits, they know this, they, they, they pay for talent, you know, right. and if we just continue to, to say, well, we'll just, yeah, you know, I, I like world vision. I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers or anything, right. but it's just like, if we just, if we just say, well, only, only if you're a billion dollar nonprofit, you can, you know, give, give your executives a, a decent salary, you know, like, and, and again, this isn't, this isn't about money grabbing or, or anything. If, if most of us that are working in nonprofits, we understand when we went into this, that we would not make what our counterparts make in for-profit companies. And I think to a certain degree, like we're okay with that, you know, so long as we can provide for our families, but it is difficult. You know, I mentioned in there about that, that nonprofit up here in the Seattle area where it was this big news that they said everybody will make at least $70,000. But that was the reality. They were, I think it was like a homeless ministry or a homeless, you know, outreach organization, something like that. They're like, they're reaching out to, you know, people that are living in poverty, people with big social challenges and doing good work. And yet we're going to put them in a position where they also are living in poverty according to the cost of living. You know, and and I understand like we have to, we had we do want to acknowledge all our listeners in other countries. Um, you know, when I lived in Tanzania, it did not the cost of living was not what it is in Seattle, Tacoma, and I didn't make you know my take home wasn't yeah, nearly as much, but I was okay, I was okay, you know. Exactly. So so there is a relativity to it, um, but it is it, it's important that we not not uh, tie our hands, you know, by just saying well we're just going to take whatever's available and we'll just kind of pick up the scraps both in terms of personnel and overhead. So, uh, anyways, I, I think this is an important conversation and this conversation that we like to have here. Yeah. You know, and I, I look at that and go, the, the problem with not paying is either you won't get the people or people will burn out and they won't be able to live. They won't be, or they won't be able to do it where, where they are, you know? And, and, you know, people are like, well, you could just move. Yeah. Well, the problem is, is that's uprooting a family, which will cause other issues and they'll probably have other uh, unintended consequences that you're, that you weren't planning on at that point. And so I don't think we, you know, what we're not saying is, is, oh, you just got to pay them a ton of money, you know, because they should be rich. No, the, the thing is they should be able to not have the money be a stressing them out all the time, which will then cause marital issues, will cause family issues, will cause other things. Their kids shouldn't have to live on the poverty line and go 
get bread at the at the local you know bread line if there were those things right that that's the thing that that that's what we're saying here is it should be something that you should be able to pay for a job well done and that's just not a reality and the thing interesting about the film is it's not podunk little nonprofits it's talking about it's talking about massive ones that we've all heard of and we all know right and we're making millions and millions and millions of dollars and they were well, one it was the 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 CEO basically took the took the revenue of the of the nonprofit from five million to five hundred million, so they paid him a little bit of money, a little bit more, and they got in big trouble because he was getting paid too much. And it was like, would you rather have him stayed at five million dollars and pay him, 50, you know, hundred thousand, or would you rather have him be at five hundred million? And when you look at it, like in those terms, it's a no brainer. Um, but that's not the terms you looked at. You had to look at in well. How is he getting paid yeah. in comparison to the other nonprofit people? Blah 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 blah. So even nonprofit people who are doing nothing. Anyway, and yeah, and hopefully people can can understand the broader context and take all of the factors into play. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. Sometimes that might be too I much to recommend. Ask, anyways, people, I'd recommend right now. I mean, this is our rec. This is my recommendation, and you 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 can give your two cents to Brandon. But I would recommend. Take Lindsay up on the opportunity to get a private screening or something if you want to do it soon when you listen to this. And we'll have, you know, a way to get in touch with her in the show notes. But take take her up on it and then show it to your board and get them to get it. And show it to, you know, some of your major donors and some other people that you know. Uh, but before you do any of that, make sure you understand it. You get it. You believe in it. If you don't, then, you know, just ignore it. But if if you don't, I would consider why you don't, and what are what are the what are the uh, premises that you have that you're basing whatever your disagreement of the film, what it what is that on, and then if those are legit, then you know you have a conviction a different way, then okay, so be it. I'm not going to argue with that. Um, however, if it's based on some fallacy or based on some social construct that is not uh, legit, then then I would say, you know, challenge that and go, you know, uh, really dig into this a bit deeper and go, what, 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 am I, what are my assumptions that I'm making that are causing me to, to discount this? Because this is something that could change not just the nonprofit sector. This can literally change the world. Because as you said during the interview, Brandon, most of the good things in the world are happening through the nonprofit sector. The vast majority of them. I don't, and if you disagree with me, fine, but I would say not many good things come out of the government, right? I mean, there just aren't, there aren't many because most of the things that are good have, have strings or have other issues or have, you know, have issues of delivery systems, have issues of unintended consequences, have all these things going on because there's not as much thought going into it as goes into nonprofit work because the nonprofit leaders who are the good ones that I know are thinking about these issues so much they're thinking about the nuances they're diving deep into them versus a bureaucracy that is changing regularly and people aren't really intimately involved with the issues they're making decisions thousands of miles away from anybody that they're touching anybody that they're impacting and so that's something that I've seen um, and that I, that I believe, I mean, I firmly believe that, that if we're going to actually take, take 
major steps to alleviating these issues in our world, then the nonprofit sector is where it's going to happen. And um, if we're going to do that, we got to make sure that we're um, funding those things better and funding the people who are leading them better um, or else we're going to lose the great, the great leaders. It's good, man. That's good. I, there's a lot more that we could say uh, when we kind of look at how societies are structured and and who should be playing what role. I think suffice it to say that nonprofits play a, a huge role, and uh, without better support, without without uh, without better uh, efficiency or just uh, opportunity for nonprofits to really grow and address these really big societal ills, if we if we uh, don't take that seriously, then these problems will just persist, and they are persisting. So I, I think it's a it's a it's an opportunity for us to rethink these paradigms. And Uncharitable gives us a great opportunity for that. So recommendation: go watch Uncharitable. Yeah, and uh, and we'll leave it at that. So Phil, why don't you uh, yeah. take us home, buddy? I'd also say you know if if you want to go deeper into some of the if the societal issues, you can go back to those interviews we did with Michael Miller back in the first. I don't know what season it was. It was like episode 50 or something right around there. If you go on either side of that, it's right around there. We did two episodes with Michael Miller and Poverty Inc. It was just phenomenal and talks about a lot of those other things that are going on, as you saw, as you just mentioned. It reminded me of that, Brandon. So folks, you know, thank you for, again, for just being part of this. As you can tell, we're we're passionate about this and it makes, this is this is real stuff and these are real, real issues. And as with everything we talk about on this show, and this is just a different angle on it that uh that we wanted to bring and and yeah it doesn't seem directly connected with the kids but it is and that's what people need to see is that we can't do this stuff without funding it we can't do this stuff without the best leaders making the decisions about it and if you don't believe that then you haven't been in the rooms that brandon and i have been in the people leading these organizations make a big difference in the policies for kids not just in these random countries around the world but in the U.S., in the U.N. Um, I've sat in rooms with people that are, that are making decisions for the U.N. And if we don't have strong leaders who are working these things, then, then we're, we're not going to be able to make the impact that we want to, particularly from a Christian uh, perspective. So, you know, folks, we just, we hope that you're taking all that you're learning from the show and, the, and that you do check out Uncharitable. And you, when you, learn all these different things that you're you're learning we we hope and pray that you take all these things and you use them to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children and their families better and better each and every day thanks a lot have a great couple weeks we hope you've enjoyed today's think orphan podcast for all the information in this week's podcast please visit us at thinkorphan.com. you too can be part of the conversation send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the think orphan facebook page thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of think orphan